Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Seven on a Monday. Mike McNamara with you. We continue on a Monday edition of All Marine Radio. Seven minutes after nine o'clock here on the West Coast. Which uh, Carl Mar- Marlanis is on the West Coast, so I don't feel compelled to give East Coast time right now. So first of all, Carl, uh, thanks for taking time out of your day and uh, and joining us here on All Marine Radio. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. How about the Marine Corps having its own unofficial radio channel? It's about time, huh? Yeah, I know. I, I, uh, uh, the Army will be completely uh, uh, mortified by that now. They've already been mad at us since World War One because of our publicity machine. So this is just a fault in the wound. Oh, exactly. You know, we got our, our guy got to the top of Mount Everest before their guys did, and now, and, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to, in fact, start all Army radio. We'll, we'll own it, but we'll throw them a bomb just because, oh, okay. you know, us. somebody's got to take care of those guys. I think that's good, yeah. All right. Carl, first of all, uh, for those of you who don't know him, first lieutenant, United States Marine Corps, uh, born and raised in Oregon, and we'll get into that, uh, a Navy Cross winner, a two-time uh, best-selling author on the New York Times bestseller list, among a bunch of other things, has five kids and, uh, uh, in his life, and uh, has written a book, My Second Lieutenant Son, uh, said, hey, Dad, have you ever read this book? And I said, what's the name of it? He said, what it's like to go to war? And I said, no. Who wrote it? He goes, I don't know this dude named Marlanius. I said, oh, okay. So I, uh, I, I started, I found it. And, uh, and then when we came on on June 1st, we started the process of uh, tracking down who is this uh, Marlanis guy. And, uh, and, and we should probably meet him and know about him because there's huge lessons relative to mental health in the book, and that's what uh, All Marine Radio is dedicated to. So, uh, again, Carl, uh, can't tell you what an honor it is to have you on, and uh, but we need to learn about you so we can know if we can believe uh, the things you're saying. Born and raised where? I was born uh, in Astoria, Oregon, and raised in Seaside, Oregon, which is just 17 miles south of there, and there was no hospital in Seaside, so Mom had to go up to Astoria. But uh, uh, it was a, then it was a logging town, and now all the trees are gone, so it's kind of a tourist town. There's a beach there for people who can't afford to go south to the sunshine. I mean, it is Oregon. <laughs> you know, and how uh, brothers and sisters? I have a, had an older brother who uh, died just a few years ago from cancer, which is unfortunate. But it's the two of us. All right, and uh, and your dad of uh, Vietnam, your dad a World War II veteran. Oh yes, yeah, and several uncles. He uh, yeah, he he was. Uh, uh, initially, it's interesting. He's initially in the OSS because uh, he's a fluent Greek speaker. Uh, wow. His native language is Greek, and they, at that time they thought maybe they'd go up to Greece instead of Italy. And then when that plan changed, he went back to the regular army, and he was, uh, uh, you know, he came across the Utah Beach, but not on the not on the first day, as he says. Thank God. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and he was within the Red Ball Express. He ran convoys. Uh, Nothing spectacular. He was, you know, in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and an interesting thing about that is, um, I think I was 50 years old, and we were we were having Christmas dinner, and somehow it was like Christmas time. Well, that was when the Battle of the Bulge was. And my dad at the other end of the table said, oh, "I was in that." What? <laughs> and I was like, "What?" what? <laughs> he said, "You never told me that." He said, "Well, you never asked." And I said, "Well, why would a kid ask his dad if he was in the Battle of the Bulge?" I mean, I just. It's just an example of how veterans just keep their mouths shut, you know. It's so interesting, and you know what? Uh, as I read your book, um, I, I'm I was born in '57, so I'm born 13 years after you. But when I grew up, I grew up in, in very much the same environment that you did. When you went to a Veterans Day parade or a Memorial Day parade, everybody was a veteran. There was yeah. there was not too many men standing on the sidewalk and. And those who were standing on the sidewalk were not real happy to be, to be there because right. everybody fought in those world those wars and yeah. and so talk to us about uh, about growing up like that and uh, you're kind of an all American kid you know athlete and and uh, and smart guy go to Yale and then a Rhodes Scholar 
And uh, I don't know how that guy winds up in the Marine Corps, but he did. And uh, and so talk to us about growing up kind of like that yeah. as a kid. I also say about winding up in the Marine Corps. The, uh, you know, it, it was it's true. I mean, back when I was growing up, like I said, this little logging town, um, there about 2,000 people in it. Um, and um, one of the things was is that uh, virtually everybody's dad uh, or uncle was in some form of the, of the service. And that's an interesting word that was called the service back then. I mean, was, oh, yeah, your, your uncle was in the service in, during World War II. They didn't talk about which branch or anything, it just was the service. Now it's called the military. And I think that that's a big switch in our language that, that's important to pay attention to. I think that the whole attitude of the country has changed in a lot of, of ways about what you owe to your country and so on. Back then it was sort of like, well, you know, you might get drafted. And then the draft hung over everybody. It was sort of like income tax. It's sort of like, I mean, I don't know anybody who voluntarily wants to pay their income tax, but everybody that I know says, well, you know, we do have to fund the government. After all, it's part of being a member of a republic and part of being a citizen. And uh, the draft hung over our heads just like that as well. So there were two things that were really different. The draft and the fact that everybody's dad or uncle or mother's cousin was in the service, and the, the attitude about that was different. It was, well, you just sort of did that as a citizen of the Republic. I think it's changed now. And I know I know the answer to this, but I need to ask it so everybody can hear it. Change for the better, change for the worse? No, I think change for the worse. I, uh, I think that uh, uh, the all-volunteer military has isolated the military. Uh, and uh, I think that the elites have basically dropped out. I mean, when I was at uh, Yale, there were uh, there's a place there called Wolseley Hall that has the names of hundreds and hundreds. I mean, in the hundreds of dead Yaleys, guys that died fighting uh, for their country. I think there's one or two guys that died in Vietnam. Fifth Fulbright, who was a Marine, and none. Yeah, it's not that I wish death on anybody, but it's sort of an interesting little chart if you go in there and look to see the fall off of how the elites are participating in our military. Um, and I think that, quite frankly, that's because of the draft and, and also this change in attitude that, well, you know, it's just a volunteer military. And um, I call it a, an all-recruited military because I'm a little bit cynical, I'm sorry, but, I mean, I don't... You smirch anybody's patriotism. The guys that are in the military are patriots. But I think that the, the whole way that the country views it is what's changed. It's sort of like volunteers are guys that run down to the post office when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. That's a volunteer. Uh, getting recruited is things like, well, you'll get GI Bill and you can learn a skill and we'll give you a good salary and da 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 da. That's a whole different sort of way of looking at things. Um, and I think that it's, uh, you know, when, when the elites drop out, that's a that's a bad sign for a republic. Everybody's got to pull their oar. And the guys in the military know. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny percentage carrying a huge load. Um, I was at uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, which I was outside Fort Bragg, and there was this young guy um came up for a book signing, and his wife's with him, and she's got a baby in one arm and hauling a toddler, and he's in his fatigue and standing straight and tall, and she burst into tears. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I finally get her to stop crying, and, and, and I go, what's the matter? And she points to her husband, and she says, he's, he's shipping out again tomorrow. And I turned to the guy and said, wow, second tour. And he says, no, sir, my seventh. I about... I mean, my stomach fell. My heart fell. I mean, I just thought, this is crazy. We, we can't run a republic laying that kind of burden on, on somebody. Um, we've got to change our way. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't want to draft everybody in the military. There's too many people. But national service, everybody chips in a couple years with their talents. I mean, there's a lot of potholes to fill. There's a lot of kids that teach how to read. There's all kinds of things that all you know, 18, 20-year-olds can do, uh, and out of that pool, some would just do their service in a, a branch of the military. I just, something like that, I think, has got to change. You know, I had a, 
you know, I were talking before we came on, and I, I mentioned that Sebastian Younger was on. And uh, I saw yesterday that you, you kind of poked at him uh, about a review he did on your book. <laughs> but he made the same comment about national service in terms of what needs to change and how do you change it. And I think that I, my own opinion is I don't think it will happen. I don't know how it happens. But everybody who serves the country is touched in a positive way. I don't know too many people um, who who look back on their service and, and can't tell you. It might have been miserable, but you know what? It was one of the great learning experiences of my life. I learned about this country. I learned about people I would have never crossed paths with. I mean, you you talk about the story of, you know, you, you grew up in, you know, white Oregon. And, yeah. and you join the Marine Corps, you go to Vietnam, you experience racism, you see it, and then you write about it in, in, in Matterhorn. Uh, and, and you develop that that you would have never you you know you would have never experienced that had you stayed in Oregon and and, and not I mean, ultimately it would have come but I, I don't I don't know anybody who it doesn't change for the positive to include politicians who who would feel a different sense of what they owe in my opinion what they owe the country it isn't about being on CNN crossfire and winning points at the end of the day there's real people that really need you to push the ball further down the road in this democracy and not shut it down all the time and play stupid games and if, <laughs> and I think if you served you get that you're touched yeah, no, your heart's touched and and, uh, and you get mixed everybody gets mixed in uh, absolutely I love to tell the story of, of uh uh, Ray Delgado, who's a you know a, a Chicano kid that uh, uh, from Texas and in, in the company, and uh, one day he's got a package from home, and I look at that and I I say, Gosh, uh, what's that, Ray? And he looks at me and he says, That's no, that's a tamale, uh, and I said, What's that? <laughs> you know, I'm from this logging town in Oregon. I never heard of Mexican food. And, and, and he says, well, you know, it's, it's good. You want to try one? And I, so I go, yeah, okay. So I start chewing on it, and I'm going, like, God, these things are tough. No wonder these Mexicans have such great white teeth. And he's looking at me and he says, Lieutenant, you take the corn husk off before you eat it. <laughs> but you see, that was an idea. I mean, I was 20, what, I turned 23. I mean, I'd never eaten Mexican food except joining the Marine Corps and being with Ray Delgado. It's an I mean, it, it binds the country. It binds the country. So I think it's important. You know what? I, and I, don't, I don't know what would have to happen in our country to make that happen, but I will tell you this. I absolutely agree with you. Not everybody needs to join the military, you know, to be a fire, you know, the fire auxiliary or, you know, get into VISTA or a reading program or reconstitute absolutely. the Civilian Conservation Corps and you go with your little company around the country and fix bridges or or whatever you fix, I, I just there's so many collateral benefits for the democracy that uh, that I think is absolutely essential. Talk okay. about uh, let's talk about how you get to the Marine Corps. So you go to Yale, and first of all, explain to everybody how you become a Rhodes Scholar, and then tell everybody how the Marine Corps gets on uh, on your on your horizon. <laughs> well, I'll do it in the reverse order because I joined the Marines when I was about 18. Um, when I was First of all, there's this crazy book. Uh, I don't know if you, you, you saw these. They were called the Landmark Books. There was a whole series. Betsy Ross and the story of the United States flag and mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson and Monaco. And then one of, this, one of these books was the, the story of the United States Marines. And I, I, I started reading that when I was about 9 or 10 years old. And, and I, I, wow, this is cool. I, I want to be a Marine. And then when, when I was in high school, all, I played football, and the guys on the football team tended to join the Marines. I mean, they'd go away, you know, after high school and disappear to some mysterious place called San Diego, and and then they'd come back. And two things I noticed that, that was one is that they seemed to be about four inches broader in the shoulders, and they'd swagger up and down Broadway, which was the <laughs> main street in my little town. Like, and I I was thinking, man, I. I'd like some of that. And, and the other thing is that they came back with something we've never seen. It's called a suntan. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so it, 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 there was this whole, whole combination of dad and uncle, World War II, the draft, wanting to serve your country, manhood, I want some of that. Uh, you know, it, adventure it was this whole melange. And 
I joined the Marine Corps in, in the PLC program, mm -hmm. uh, and you know that, that's that, that's a program that's just, it, it's the equivalent of OCS. You go to you go to summers and, and you do the equivalent of boot camp, and if mm -hmm. you survive, then then you go up to the college of your choice, and then when you're done, you get commissioned. And so I went to Yale, and um, I had a scholarship there. What kind, what kind of scholarship? A National Merit Scholarship. Smart guy. So you were a smart guy. I was a smart guy. I mean, Did you ever I get tagged as a genius? Also, I was also got along with everybody. Yeah, so it doesn't sound like you would have been tagged as a genius because you were a good athlete and kind of a down-to-earth kid. So you were never, yeah. you never wore it on. You never wore how smart you were on your sleeve. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you didn't. I mean, you know, high school. It, never a good thing. Yeah, that's right. You got to fit in, and uh, but no, no, I was smart, and everybody knew it, and and uh, but nobody held it against me. <laughs> well, that's good. See, you have to be savvy smart when you join the Marine Corps, because if you get tagged as a genius, that's not that is not a good thing. I, I know. <laughs> and I'll tell you a great story, Marine story, because I did get tagged. I mean, when I when I got got to my company, which was way out in the middle, we were about a click from Laos and about a click from the DMZ. I mean, that was as far north and west in the country as you could possibly get. And uh, I was there about, oh, 10 days or 15 days in. And by that time, the platoon had pretty well settled in and knew that I was, you know, somebody they could talk to. And, and uh, this squad leader of mine, Jay Wazy, in 19, you know, Lance Corporal, squad leader, great guy, thought about smart, he's really good. But he comes up to me and, and he says, Sir, he says, ah, you know, are they shitting us about you going to Yale and being a Rhodes Scholar? <laughs> I said, no, Jake, they're not shitting you. And he looks at me and he says, you must be the dumbest fucking Rhodes Scholar on record. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, what was, did you defend yourself at all? What was your response? I broke out laughing. <laughs> I mean, here I am, you know, in the middle of this god awful place, you know, the jungle in Vietnam, with you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't know how I ended up here, but but you know, I was really, I look back, I'd never change a thing. I, I'm glad I did it. Every, all the horror and all the sadness. I mean, I had a high school girl once ask me back my own high school, went back to my own high school to give a talk. She asked me, would you do it again? And it took me by surprise because no one's asked me that before. And I uh, and I thought for a minute. And I said, you know, it it's part of who I am. That whole Vietnam combat experience. It's part of who I am. I can't imagine myself without that component of my personality. And I like who I am. So yeah, I, I, I guess I'd do it again. Um, you know, there's an irony to that because. It, I wish I'd do it again and be guaranteed that I'd come back like I did. Right. Um, but, of course, then if you could be guaranteed you'd come back, basically, you know, whole, it's not the same experience. Yeah, the, lesson, the lessons are lost. My guest this morning, yeah. uh, First Lieutenant Carl Mar Marlanis, uh, United States Marine Corps, Navy Cross winner, author, father, and uh, businessman. A lot of things in his life. Uh, graciously joining us. I've email for you, Carl. Mac, I've read Carl's book, and uh, since this is all Marine Radio, I want to ask him Marine stuff. What was it like to assault up the mountains that they assaulted up? I can't, after fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, our fight in Afghanistan on low-level, mostly flat terrain and farmland, Iraq similar in terms of all flat. I read the book. I'm trying to imagine assaulting in jungle up a, a mountain that's 30 degrees or more in grade in t and then taking on bunkers as we went up, all done in jungle, that had to be physically unbelievably taxing. Could he talk about it, Carl? Sure. Well, first of all, most of the time we had a, a pretty good air prep and artillery prep, and so when you finally got to where they were, the jungle was blasted away. Uh, and they often went where they got into fortified positions. Ironically, they often dug into places that, that had already been uh, blasted away or denuded by uh, Agent Orange. But you 
had to work your way through the jungle, and we were constantly trying to make decisions, and sometimes we made, made the wrong ones about what equipment to carry because you just couldn't pack the load. Uh, one time we went, we went on an assault and left the mortars behind because we thought, well, we're not going to be able to use our mortars uh, when we get up, and they're heavy. And, uh, and everybody carrying the ammunition. I mean, everybody carried two mortar shells. And 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 those and, and going up those steep inclines. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you got out of breath and you got really tired. You never ran. You had to walk up. And that was that was the other thing. The discipline of having to do an assault. It's not like in the movies. You had to walk because you, if you started to run up that hill, you, you just exhaust yourself with carrying the ammo and the weight. And um, you know, on that one occasion, we left the mortars behind because we just didn't want to carry them. And uh, then we got surrounded and wished the hell we'd had the mortars. But uh, <laughs> I had a guy 35 years later castigating me for that decision. <laughs> a good friend of mine now. Uh, but he was just saying, why did you leave the mortars behind? I said, what seemed like a good idea at the time. I mean, the thing is, you know, we're all sort of kids. I mean, I was a second oldest in the whole company, and the company commander was six months older than me. He was 23. He's been a fraternity president. (laughs) But going back to the the terrain, the terrain was god-awful. I mean, it was a major uh, part of the operational problem. I mean, you you couldn't see where you were going. I mean, to navigate and that stuff. We didn't have GPS. You couldn't see. There was no hills that you could take compass bearings on because you couldn't see. It was completely surrounded by trees. You had to dead reckon all the time. I was always trying to keep track of where the streams were flowing and and uh, and, and trying to keep track of, of, of our direction and where we're moving because it was like being out in the ocean in, in that regard. Um, and and if, if you had to get supplies dropped to you, if they missed you by, you know, half a click, they'd be on the other side of a ridge. You'd never see what they were trying to drop to you. Um, getting LZs cut, I mean, you had to work your way to the tops of these peaks, and then you had to blast those trees out. We always carried C4. We always carried rope so that we could get ourselves up these cliffs. And um, believe me, there was a lot of questions about what in the hell are we doing this for because somebody way back in the <laughs> I mean, grunt will know this complaint Someone out with a map a long way away. I mean, those little brown things called contour lines, you know, we have to walk them. And, you know, why is Checkpoint Echo on the top of this mountain? Why can't we? <laughs> and you'd get up there, there'd be nothing there. And then you'd call in and say, well, we're on top of Checkpoint Echo. There's nothing here. And, and it, it, it was, then there was heat. Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd lose guys to heat exhaustion. Not very often, because once you got sort of what we call jungle weight, uh, that started to go away because guys got really lean really fast. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the, 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 the major things were that you, you used the cover of jungle to get in position. And so that way it, it helps you because they couldn't see you. And then when you had to go into the assault, you walked and you just, you just had to, to uh, uh, bear with it. Um, before you could get up into into the where their bunkers or holes were, um, anybody running would exhaust themselves. It was it was too steep. I got another email for you, Carl. Mac, there's a section in his book where he describes very affectionately a marine by the name of that has the nickname of Canada. He also describes the effect on the platoon and the company when Canada is killed and what I would call their killing blood is up. Could, could he talk about that? And did he feel the need to restrain it or did he simply let it go? Because that's when bad things tend to happen. At least that's my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. After we lose Marines, everybody's blood is up. Everybody wants somebody to pay. And if you don't keep that a tight rein on that stuff, depending if you're operating close to civilians, certainly has the potential for bad stuff. Would he would he talk about that, Carl? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, if, if anybody who's read the book uh, will will know that exactly what that man is talking about happened to me, and I I participated in it, and 
hard lesson um, and regret it to this day. Canada, a guy named George Jemais, was iconic Marine. He was from Canada. He was from all over British Columbia. And uh, first in his platoon uh, at, at boot camp, six foot four, looked like Errol Flynn, wore a Australian bush cover, uh, just, just, he was a warrior. I mean, he was, he was, uh, uh, different than everybody else in that regard, uh, and iconic and took point all the time, natural leader, uh, smart and savvy about combat, good guy. So he was, and, and he was killed, um, rescuing, uh, his, his squad who was pinned down by a, a machine gun. Uh, on an assault, and he was wounded pretty badly from, uh, uh, and had was in a hole with IV tubes. The corpsman was giving him IV fluid, and he ripped the IV tubes out and grabbed the, an M16 and uh, went after the machine gun and died doing it. Well, everybody was wanted wanted to pay, wanted to get some payback, and uh, me too. And and I regret that I didn't didn't hold it with what happened is that we just decided that when we when we would go back after that that same hill uh we just wouldn't take any prisoners luckily for us i mean we've never had to, to deal with that anger being directed against civilians it was directed against the nda and um, when they would raise their hands to surrender which they did in a couple of instances we just gunned them down uh i wish we hadn't and uh, that's one of those one of those things you carry with you. You make mistakes in war. And uh, if I had been on top of it more, I said, "All right, you know, we don't have to go into this no quarter uh, attack." But that's that's what we did. And, and if people really want to see the details of that, I write about it in the book uh, with with regret, and I still regret it to this day. It's a it's a, a lesson that I hope others learn is that when you start to, to get that kind of anger up. That's that's when you've got to if you if you're a leader you've got to start to put a clamp on it. It's like you know anger is not part of this business here. We're here to complete the mission, and uh, you've got to remember when the action's over, like the hills taken, the objectives, the missions accomplished, that those people that you were killing just two minutes ago aren't animals. They're human beings, and they're there because of circumstances. They were born in some place in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they were raised a certain way. They ended up on the other side of the, of the equation from you. Uh, it's really hard, and I think that we need to train our, everybody, our Marines, but especially our leaders, to get in and out of that situation. And, I mean, it's, I don't see how you can kill anybody unless you think that they're an animal. You sort of, you know, they're a hodgy, they're a cowhead, they're a goop, they're a jap, a nip. Um, they're not human. That way you can pull the trigger. Because you, you mean all your life you've been told you can't kill another human being and, and you regret it and you don't want to do it. So for the moment, you're killing an animal. It's an animal trying to hurt you, an animal trying to hurt your friends. You can pull the trigger. You've got to get everybody out of that viewpoint. I call it pseudo-speciating and making a false species out of another human being. As soon as the action's over... Very difficult, and especially if you've never told anybody about this phenomenon, you've never trained people to say you're going to go in and out. You can't stop it. It's like you know, the, the sort of the people who've never been there will say, "Oh, you know, you should dehumanize people." Come on, right, right. this is a war in combat. You, you must dehumanize them. I don't see any way to getting the job done. But you've got to pull yourself out. And what this man was writing about just gave you the question: Is that? that thing about when that anger comes and you're just fighting a bunch of animals and just want to destroy them. No, that's when you have to try and pull back and remember your humanity and their humanity. I want to switch gears just a little bit. And uh, I saw a comment you, you made that you're not anti-war now, you're anti-stupid war. It seems to me one of the great frustrations with American foreign policy and and with the way we go to war since World War II, is we don't remember that once the military part stops, that 
there's a whole other piece that has to go in order for us to, quote-unquote, win the peace. And we seem to want to unass these nations like Iraq, like Afghanistan. After hostilities are over, now we've kicked over everything and we want to leave. Part of going to war is winning the peace. In Vietnam, I've seen you talk repeatedly about, you know, we were there to... For a body count, we nobody articulated, hey, we're going to go here, we're going to seize this and seize that, and this is how the war is going to go, and the detrimental effect on you. Yet it seems like American, the executive branch certainly, Congress not so much participating anymore. We've lost our way relative to how to, how to, how to do war, then how to do the peace after the war in terms of economic growth, stability, I mean, hell, Germany, Japan, and South Korea all were 50-year events after the war. And it seemed to me that we're asking families in this country to make the same immoral sacrifice that we want to go play, 58,000 in Vietnam, 7,000 in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then we're going to get tired of it, and then we're going to leave. And then we're going to say, you know what, we're tired of it. That, to me, is immoral. You can't ask that of the citizens of this nation and keep doing it on a regular basis. I want to get your thoughts on, on stupid war, what I would say stupid foreign policy, and, and the waste, and the, immor- the immoral waste of the young people of this country. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm preaching to the choir talking to you, uh, and uh, there's several thoughts I have on what I consider to be stupid war. If it doesn't line up with our biology, we better think about what we're doing. Your basic 19-year-old Marine understands if somebody's coming after his family, his sister, his wife, that he's got to defend them and he'll fight. And we have gotten ourselves into positions where not much is at stake in terms of the survival of our nation. We're putting the, the... those 19-year-olds out there in the situations where you can't really explain to them in very simple terms why they're there. You could do that early on in Afghanistan. These people, al-Qaeda, attacked us, killed several thousand of us, and uh, they're being protected by the Taliban, and we need to go after them and, and stop this. Okay. I get that. I'm 19. I get that. I'm going to go there and stop those whatevers from coming after us. Now, the next step. Well, we're over there to build a nation, uh, and I'm going to die for this. Wait a second. See, it starts to wobble as soon as you move away from that basic biology of we're here to protect. That's what the Marines are here for and all the armed services, to protect the Republic. When you start doing it for sort of esoteric foreign policy theories, things like that, it gets harder and harder to explain. You get further from the biology of protection, it gets harder to explain. And I think that that's one of the major problems that we've gotten ourselves into. The second one is short-sightedness. You're absolutely right. And where this comes from, is in my opinion, because <laughs> I'm going on the radio, I get to give you my opinion. I love that. Is, is that the statesmen, the policymakers, have a big confusion in their mind, as do most Americans, between a warrior and a policeman. Warriors choose sides. They're willing to risk their lives and limbs to protect their side. Police can't choose sides. They're willing to risk their lives and limbs to protect their, their, their people, but they can't choose sides. They have to be on the side of the law. And the ideal warrior, in my opinion, is 19. The ideal policeman is 40. Whole different tasks, whole different ways of having to look at the world. The 19-year-old will go day and night without food, and you're telling him to take the hill, and he'll take the hill. You're 35 or 40 year old. You're going to say, "Go take the hill." They're going to look at you and say, "Whoa, where's the Air Force? Why don't we just wait a week and then bomb them for?" I mean, you can imagine the difference. And what we're doing though is taking 19 year olds who are trained as warriors and putting them into positions in places like Afghanistan and Iraq 
that a 40-year-old cop would have trouble with. Why? There's no law. There's no, what is it, Sharia law, Western European law, American law? What, what law do the people all agree to follow? Even here in America where there's police work, the criminals agree that the law is the law. They just have decided to break it. And you don't send the police into a bad neighborhood, clean it out in a week and a half, and then pull the police out. The police are there all the time. That's police work. And what we're doing is taking 19-year-old warriors and sending them to places to act like police in places where police would fail because we don't have agreed-upon law. And so I think that is a fundamental foreign policy issue that has not been dealt with in this country, and that's why we end up in stupid wars. If it's something for warriors and we really understand it, or something for policemen who are going to be there for 50 or 100 years, maybe we have different decisions made like, hmm, maybe I don't want to be the police force in Afghanistan for the next century. Oh, okay, because that's what you're trying to decide. But we're pretending that we can do that kind of work with a, well, in their minds, a six-month effort with a bunch of 19-year-olds firing automatic weapons. Um, I had a, I had an SAS friend of mine who, who, who had been in Afghanistan three or four times uh, kind of chiding me about that. He, he said, this is what it sort of got me thinking about it. He says, he says you know, you've got to, you're sending in a bunch of 19-year-old Marines with automatic weapons just shooting up the place. And he says, what good is that going to do you? <laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, good, good observation. Well, you know, uh, to me, and it's you Yale guys that are the problem because <laughs> we, um, it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's be in the planning group. Okay, we've now run the Taliban. You know, we've run them around a little bit. We're looking for Osama bin Laden. What's next? Okay, let's expand our presence all over Afghanistan, and we'll stabilize the country. Right. Okay. That's our, the mission change. Right. Mission creep. Right. That's so the, I go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we've already got the military there. Now what do we do? Yeah. Uh, I think it, I don't know. I'm not in the circles that make those decisions. I mean, what they should have done is said, gosh, Osama bin Laden left for Pakistan. Now we got another problem on our hands. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's time to bring the, bring, bring the guys home and figure out how to get him some other way. You know what? I, I, I agree with you. And then, so because I'm a smart guy, I say, okay, we're all going to go home and think about this tonight. I go and I, I do some reading about Afghanistan. And I come back the next day. We gavel it into session. And then I stick my hand up and I say, hey, you know, in terms of us thinking about broadening this thing, do you realize that we would be trying to create something that's never been created before? Because I just read about 30 minutes of Afghan history. This has yeah. never been a nation. So are we ready? So if Germany, Japan are 50-year events, what the hell is this, 150? Right. Uh, that's just me. I'm like, uh, I, didn't, I didn't go to Yale or anything like that, so I'm not as smart as you guys. <laughs> I just... You tar me with the same right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you got... You, Harvard you, guys, Harvard guys, Gloria. <laughs> you're right. Those goddamn Harvard guys. Okay. So the um, so that's the question. And, and so it's like now we're going to go on this fool's errand. And then we're not going to be honest with the American people and say, you know what? We're going to be there for a long time. And you guys need to understand that, that I, as the president, believe that this is so significant in changing that part of the world and the long-term benefits will be such to the American people that we're we're in for a penny, we're in for a pound. We're all in in Afghanistan. All right. And I mentioned that that should be debated by the Congress. Uh. The Congress has not declared war since 1942, which is a little bit Crazy. of history. The last time we declared war was against Romania in the summer of 42, because they were an ally of Germany. But they were that meticulous. Oh. We've got to fight Romania. Well, the Constitution says the Congress has to declare war if we're going to fight Romania, and they declared war. Obviously, they declared war against Japan uh, on December 8, 41. But that has changed, uh, and the Congress has been shirking its ability. That's where those debates have to be made because you're talking about policy elites who do lose touch. They're all there with their theories and everything. Supposedly, the Congress represents the people, and they come from various districts in this country where they have the pressures of the people that they want to get reelected by to debate things like, okay, am I going to send, you know, John and, you know, Mary uh, 
from my little home home district to Afghanistan for a hundred years. Let's talk about this. But Congress has backed out, basically. Carl Marlanis, our guest this morning on a Monday edition of All Marine Radio. The uh, you can send a text message seven one four six six one eight one zero seven. You can email live dot radio at gmail dot com, or you can call seven one four eight eight four four two nine four. Uh, emailer writes this, Mac, I've heard Carl speak before. He talks about incidents where he would get angry, smashing a cabinet, um, trying to rearrange somebody's windshield with his children all near when this happened, yet he did not link it to his Vietnam experience. I find that interesting. Did he not think that any of his killing in combat and all the different things he saw were impacting him? So... Carl, you're very uh, open and honest about uh, yeah. your anger management, and but you never linked it to, you know, what we know now as PTSD. Right. I'd never heard of PTSD. Just that simple. I'd never heard of it. No one, no one had ever talked about it uh, in any of the circles I was in, and uh, you know, it didn't start getting really talked about until the '80s, which was you know, 15 years to 20 years after I I'd been in combat. And, uh, you know, people say, God, that was really idiotic. He didn't relate those things. But the fact of the matter is, if you've never heard that there are reactions from, from combat uh, that are similar to what you're doing, why would you think it was that, that it was related? I mean, it was just not in the, I don't know what you call it, the zeitgeist. It wasn't there. We, we Nobody talked about post-traumatic stress. Nobody, they didn't even believe it existed. Uh, they had, there was a big fight that, that went on for some period of time to even say that this is something that is, that the VA needs to pay attention to. The VA, is, you know, a huge number of them, and this is, you know, 40 years ago, said, well, they're just making it up. It's not true. Um, and, uh, had, had ignored the experience, like, well, what, the Craig Lockhart Hospital, the, the, the Brits had been, had been on top of it. And all that stuff got lost, and then World War II came around. Huge amounts of, I mean, one quarter of our casualties were psych. I mean, a quarter of the casualties were psychological. And uh, then as soon as the war is over, there's all the flag-waving and the Fourth of July parades, and we forget about it until Vietnam, and then it was forgotten. It was just forgotten about. It's now embedded in the consciousness of, of, the, of the country. Big, big difference. So, no, I didn't relate. I thought, Jesus, I don't know, I'm going crazy. I mean, what? I've never been this way in my life before. What's going on? My job stress or, you know, uh, is it married life? I mean, I wondered about it. Never linked it to combat experience. Not that married life couldn't do that to you, but uh, <laughs> in your case, no. Um, another question for you. Um, Mac, I've, uh, I've watched Mr. Marlana speak. And he makes a point about post-combat-related mental health in terms of the family being treated as well as the combat veteran. Could he elaborate on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'll I'll tell you an incident that, that to me, crystallizes the, the difference between a family knowing what's going on and not knowing. Um. This happened about four or five years ago, so I mean, it's reason I still have my issues with post-traumatic stress. I was coming back I was from a grocery shopping, and I had my hands full of groceries, two bags in my hands, and my daughter had put the chain lock, you know, the little chains that go across the door, mm-hmm. on the front door. Why she had done that, I don't know. But anyway, so I come up to the door, and I'm fumbling because I have hands full of groceries, and I open the door, and I push it open so I can get through it, and it bang, it hits that lock. Well, it startled me. The groceries go up in the air. I hit that door with my fist, you know, bang, you know, and screaming at it, you know, all the stuff. And then my wife pokes her head through the crack of the door, and she grins at me, and she says, did you take your meds today? <laughs> See, she had a sense of humor about it. Right. Carl's not going crazy. Carl's just doing a PTSD thing here. He mm. probably didn't take his meds, and she just sort of grinned about it. And you know, we picked up the groceries, and life went on. As opposed to 20 years earlier, in my first marriage, and we were both ignorant 
Well, you can imagine what my wife would have thought then if, some, if I was doing something like that. Oh, my God. God, I'm married to a madman. Right. I mean, I'm going to take the kids for their protection to my mother's because, God, if, it's, if he's breaking the door down, what's he going to do to us? You know, I mean, you can see the difference was in 20 years that my second wife understood what's going on, and it didn't scare her. It was just sort of like, ah. God, Carl's having a, an incident. He probably didn't take his meds, and she made a joke about it, and it just relieved all the tension. I was embarrassed. I wish I hadn't done it. But what a difference between, God, I'm going crazy and, and having your kids scared of you and everything. So if, if the family gets educated, like, yeah, Dad's going to do this. It's not you. It's not even Dad. It's the war. Dad's, Dad's reacting to something. His brain was changed. And, yeah, this will happen, and, you know, but you don't need to be afraid of it. He's not going to. That I, 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 we, I, this, we've been on the air a month, but I would tell you one of the lessons I've learned from interviewing all kinds of different Marine combat veterans is uh, VA more than willing to medicate you, but in terms of having, and, and, and I would say this, combat veteran therapists that can talk to you. Um, my, my therapist is a, uh, both of them have been Army, you know, Vietnam veterans. Awesome. You walked in, you see helmets, you see the I Love Me wall, everything that we know and love, right, about about our careers. It's home, right? Yeah. And you tell them your story, and they look at you, and they. my first one looked at me and said, wow, you're fucked up, and, <laughs> right? And, and we laughed. But it was, yeah. I was, I, I was home. I was, I was with, I was with fellow, you know, comrades, and it was a warm place. How do you, how do you have that conversation with a, 29-year-old woman or a 29-year-old man who doesn't know what you're talking about. And I, I will tell you what, I've done a little research into what the vet centers stood up as. They were places where veterans were, uh, and you walked in and you knew you were going to meet veterans there. That's no longer the case. 
Um, and you guys stood them up after Vietnam, and they were, they're great assets. You know, we yeah. need to take that back. You need to walk in there, and you need to know that you're going to see veterans. Hey, man, what's up? You know, yeah. and, and, and that whole feeling that you feel when you're among our tribe is, is a warm feeling, and you want to go back because you know that they're not going to let you down because it's not something we do. I've got, yeah. you know what, Carl, this is pissing me off because we're out of time, but I got, I got <laughs> one more question, and then we have to do this again because it's such a great conversation. Um, post-combat related mental health. You talk about turning ghosts into ancestors. Yeah. Explain that. What does that mean? Because, and then one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you are 30 plus years further down the road than we are in terms of your life experience after combat. And, and you can be a great advisor to all of us as we deal with our ghosts right now. How do you, what do you mean ghosts into ancestors and how important is it in your opinion? Yeah, first of all, I got that phrase from a friend of mine named Joe Bobo. He said, Carl, I think what you're doing is turning ghosts into ancestors. And, and here's what, what he, he meant by that and, and what, what I mean by that. Our combat experience is part of us. It is part of us. It's inside of us. It's part of, it, it makes up our psyches now. And ghosts haunt you. Ghosts are the parts that you are not conscious of. Those are the parts that when, 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 the, when the rage hits, you don't control it and you do really stupid things. You, you know, you end up in a bar fight and you end up in jail. The reason that you do that is because the unconscious ghost is pushing you into activity that is actually not good for you. But you're not going to get rid of that. You're not going to get rid of the fact that you were in combat, that your brain chemistry got altered, the neural pathways have changed. All those things are there, part of you now. So what you've got to do, instead of saying, I'm just going to ignore the ghost, you can't, or I'm going to send it away, you can't. You've got to turn it into an ancestor. That is, it's still part of you, but now it's out in front of you. You see it, and if you just accept it, it's like this is just, part of my past, it's an ancestor that I look at. And the way you do that to make it to make the ghost into an ancestor, you have to put it in front of you. You do it by talking to somebody about the experience. You can do it by writing about it. You can do it by praying about it. You can do it by drawing pictures, writing music. There's whatever methods work for you to get that ghost to consciousness and then in front of your eyes instead of behind your eyes, so to speak, directing you. You see it, and you're directing it now, but you will never get rid of it. You will not get rid of it. So ghosts to ancestors is the way to go. Carl, the, um, the figure 22 veteran suicide um, a day, the average age, I want to say, in the VA study, and again, it was a limited study, and they're supposed to come out with another one this summer, a more comprehensive study, but... The average age, I want to say, was upper 50s, which means a lot of Vietnam veterans are taking their own lives. And I asked my therapist uh, one day, because there's a group of Vietnam veterans that meets right before I get there. And I said, hey, what do you talk to those guys about after all these years? And he looked at me and he says, the same thing I talked to you about? Yeah. I said, I know. what do you mean? I, I'm a, like, this many years? He said, Mac, they never dealt with it. They came home and nobody wanted to talk to them. They stuffed it in the jack-in-the-box. They shut that thing, right, and they tried to keep it closed all these years. Yeah. And I just looked at him and said, they stuffed Vietnam in the jack-in-the-box? I said, that's a pretty strong-ass latch. He said, well, they didn't have any other choice. And, and a lot of them have committed suicide and, and are homeless because of it. Nobody listened. Nobody cared. Carl, as a, as a Vietnam veteran, it must break your heart to see you know, you know the, the path that a lot of Vietnam veterans have gone down because nobody was there to help and nobody was there to listen. And even the statistic today, 22 a day, the majority of those are Vietnam veterans that now are retired and have time to reflect, have not converted the ghost to ancestors, and are dealing with the ghost still to this day. Yeah. Um, I, I, and, again, you don't know what percentage of those suicides right. are actually related to combat or just 
there. I mean, you know, because maybe because they've been drinking for 35 or 40 years and they're killing themselves because of that. But then that's related to the combat, and it's it's, it's a complex issue. But I think very you know, younger people. I, I had a guy come to me and say he couldn't believe that there were race problems in the, in the, in the Marine Corps. You know? <laughs> I mean, times what? have changed, you know. And the thing that very few people really understand, unless those those of you who've gone through it, is that when we came back, we were just—it wasn't that you just didn't talk about it. You were treated hostilely. I mean, people thought of you as as the bad person. I mean, now not everybody, not even the majority, but enough so that you just shut your mouth. You never talked about it at all. I had this friend, actually my wife was a friend with, with his wife, uh, and we'd known each other, gosh, it was maybe 10 or 15 years after I got out of the war. Uh, we did little league coaching together. Or actually, it was soccer coaching together. Uh, our kids went to school. They'd come over for dinner sometimes. The kids would play together. And one evening, the, the wives are talking, and they find out that he and I both were Marines in Vietnam. We, we'd known each other that long and had never, ever even brought it up. Wow. Why? Wow. Because you did. Because you never knew. If you said, oh, I was a Marine in Vietnam, you wouldn't know that the whole conversation would just shut down and you would get this sort of hostile, sort of like, um, you know, fascist bastard, how could you be such an awful person like that? Uh, I mean, the, the, the climate was not very conducive to talking. So, yeah, no wonder these guys stuffed it. I mean, what, how else could you get along? You were you actually didn't want to mention that you were a veteran because you would you would get a hostile reaction. Or, no, you would be afraid of getting a hostile reaction because there were plenty of them. It was so politicized. And uh, uh, that has changed. You know, that's a big change, and I think it's changed because of the shameful way the country treated the Vietnam veterans. I, I always saw a bumper sticker that said, "Did you ever consider that your whole life may have been led just to be an example for others?" <laughs> <laughs> but see, I think the Vietnam veterans broke that ground. Uh, the country treats its veterans way differently. They realize the veterans don't make the foreign policy especially the 19-year-old veterans. They don't make the foreign policy, and, and they don't blame the uh, armed services for, for you know, stupid wars. Colonel Marlanis, our guest, uh, text message, he brings a lot of clarity to PTSD. Thank you. That's from a, uh, an Afghanistan and Iraq master sergeant in the Marine Corps. Carl, I can just tell you... Uh, on behalf of everybody who serves today, and I will speak for him, thank you and every Vietnam veteran out there for uh, not only your service, but what you've gone through once you've come home, because we don't get treated like that anymore. And I cannot imagine. We've lost 7,000 guys. I know, that, I know the ghosts that we deal with uh, as we've come home. I cannot imagine losing 58,000 coming home. And, uh, you know, you tell a story about being spit on. Uh, in, in, in the subway, and um, and I cannot imagine being treated with the back of your nation's hand. Uh, it simply blows my mind. And so from all of us, uh, a collective thank you for everything you and your peers went through because, as I said, we don't get treated anything, anything remotely close to that. So uh, thank you very much. No, it's, it's fine. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. All right, now, we're going to have to do this again because we only scratch the surface because there's a whole bunch of other things that, that you've written about in both your books that are, that are extremely interested. You touched on the racism piece um, that are extremely interesting that I'd love to have you back on. You don't mind coming back on, on in the not-too-distant oh, no, future, do you? It's always, uh, I just wish I could, you know, talk to all those other Marines that are listening out there instead of having to just answer text messages. No, uh, well, you know what? Here, you know, yeah. I'll tell you what. I, I think one of the things I love about this state, this program that 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 we started is we speak to Marines and and we speak to you know guys who do have ghosts and so um, and then what we'll do with this audio is uh, we'll get a good looking picture of you as a as a first lieutenant and we'll put it up on on okay. YouTube and then we'll appropriately tag it so if somebody's looking for PTSD or if somebody's looking for or, you know, family <clears throat> VA help. 
they'll see this this uh, this little YouTube video and hopefully they'll listen to it and they'll get made smarter. But and it, but I'll tell you what, it's it's certainly different hearing somebody who has a your combat experience, uh, b your intellectual background, and and then and then c your uh, your ability to articulate that. So you're a great uh, you're a great spokesman for the Marine Corps and and for guys with combat experiences. You're certainly 30 years further down the road than we are in terms of coping with this. And your simple advice about uh, ghost ancestors and take your family with you uh, are certainly just simple great pieces of advice that if we all follow, our road will certainly be a little bit smoother than the one you've had to travel. And 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 first and thank you for that advice. It's awesome advice. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Thanks for thanks for talking with me. All right. Well, Carl, uh, what's the weather like? What's on the agenda for the rest of the day? <laughs> well, writing my next novel, and uh, uh, the weather actually is good. I mean, we're starting to get into the dry season here in the Northwest. It's, you know, it's a, it's a wet, dry climate. It's not a four-season climate. It's just it's less less rainy. <laughs> what's the new novel about? Uh, it's called Deep River, and it's set in the logging camps. And, southwest part of the state at the turn of the last century and it's about a Finnish uh, immigrant and her her brothers and she's a labor organizer and it deals with uh, this uh, tension in our own culture between the collective solution, the IWW the one big union and the individual solution. She's going to fall in love with a guy who just wants his own fishing boat uh, doesn't want anything to do with anybody and uh, they're both going to realize either way works. you gotta you got to have a Compromise between the two. All right. So when's it going to be out? When you when you're done with it? Well, I hope it, I hope that I get this this next draft done before fall, and then it'll be out a year after that. So you know, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be out like around fall of next year. All right, Carl. Again, thank you very much uh, for coming on this morning. Certainly appreciate it. In order to have you on. Yep. All right. That is Bye. that is uh, Carl Marlanis, author. Navy Cross winner, uh, writer, all of that, uh, helping, I think, veterans today by giving some really smart advice. That was recorded in uh, June. I mean, what a, he's a stud. Um, you know, the different stories he tells about the fight in Vietnam, uh, to me, are incredibly, inc- incredibly, 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 um, interesting. And I think the whole debate in terms of women and infantry, we look at it through the lens of, I think a lot of people do, the most recent combat experience, and that's not what they did in Vietnam. It's not what they did in Korea. Sure as hell isn't what they did in World War II. And that's why you, you hear veterans from those conflicts, you know, when the subject comes up, look at you like, you know, are you stupid? Are you stupid? So I, I don't, you know, the whole gender integration of the Marine Corps of the of the United States Armed Services is, uh, you know, it's certainly interesting. And in terms of, uh, you know, his thoughts relative to General Barrows, General Barrow says, look, uh, being in danger isn't the same as being in combat. But as the as the as the discussion has changed, so has that. I mean, the commandant said on the program, Mac. You know, it's not an issue of women in combat. Women have been in, serving in combat. Well, General Barrow would say that in combat. Okay, you're in theater. Okay, you got shot at. That's not combat. Now, a lot of people would say would disagree with General Barrow. But I would tell you do do so at the uh, at the peril of your own reputation because uh, uh, obviously his uh, his career speaks for itself. It's just a great interview in terms of his PTSD, how he doesn't realize he even has it. There is no diagnosis for it. You know, he just thinks he's stressed out from his job. And uh, so, I, I, again, very fortunate. The other, you know, the, you know, Carl Marlanis even talks about national service. That when the elites don't serve anymore, that's not a good thing. And, you know, he talks about the Civilian Conservation Corps and, you know, and those kind of concepts. And, again, but in fact, it was funny because it's funny to listen to it now, given the discussion as it's evolved. Um, 
you know, what what would it take for our country to adopt national service? The answer is something pretty bad. And uh, I think that, uh, again, it's, it makes me sad to say it, but I, I certainly think that that's in the offing for the United States. We have made too many mistakes, and at some point we're going to pay for it. Again, until we get it right and learn learn the right lessons from 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 our mistakes, and you know, from what I see, we haven't learned the right lessons. We've learned exactly the wrong lessons. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network.